0: Welcome to Death, Lies, and Alibis. I'm your host, Christy, and this is the podcast that dives deep into the dark and eerie world of local cold cases. We're in Zanesville, a small, lovely town that's nestled in the heart of Ohio. It's bustling with tight knit neighborhoods, friendly faces, and a sense of security that you'd expect from any small town. But beneath the idyllic surface lies a hidden darkness. A collection of unanswered questions that have lingered over the years. So grab your headphones, lock your doors, and be prepared to enter a world where the truth has invaded justice. Hello folks. Welcome to the podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. If you're new, well, welcome. And I hope you stick around to the end. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to a very special listener. Hey Diana, thank you. Thanks for the wonderful support you give us, and we sure appreciate you. All right, today we're going to get, we're going to dive deeper into the Jimmy Frecker case. Now, it's a story that has left many unanswered questions in our community. Let's do a quick recap of what we've covered the last time, and then I'll set the stage for today's story. So, in our first episode, we painted a picture of Jimmy Precker, a man known for his quiet demeanor and strong community ties in Zanesville. He was a guy who, well, despite keeping to himself, he had a significant impact on those around him. His life was marked by simple routines, his dedication to his church, and his kind acts toward his neighbors. And then we dove into that fateful night in March 1990, when Jimmy was found brutally murdered in his home at 2290 Licking View Road. The discovery of his body, and it was under such violent and mysterious circumstances, what well, shook the entire community. Now, we also explored the initial investigation into his death, the lack of force entry, Those severe injuries Jimmy sustained and the overall puzzling nature of that crime scene. It left both the law enforcement authorities and the townsfolk just baffled. Because of the active nature of Jimmy's case, which that means it's inactive, um, it's not being worked. So it's basically shelved uh, until any new evidence comes up or something like that. So that's the reason the sheriff's department won't speak to us about the case. And that's usually in most of their cold cases. So, despite the efforts of the local sheriff's department, which back then it was led by Sheriff Bernie Gibson in 1990, the case quickly did grow cold and it was leaving those questions unanswered. And that's where we are now, folks. Today, we're going to focus on a new aspect of the case. Very interesting. We're going to focus on the persons of interest. There are four individuals who have come under scrutiny in connection with this murder. And each one brings a new and different layer to this complex story. Now with these suspects, we enter a web of potential motives, right? Past grudges, yep, and the search for the elusive truth. So let's dive in and see if we can shed some light on this. I'll start by focusing on the three young men, and they had a history with Jimmy because a year before Jimmy's murder, he testified against them in a robbery case, which resulted in their convictions. We'll explore the possibility of a revenge motive, and how this previous encounter could have influenced their actions. And then we'll take a closer look at the fourth suspect, the individual who emerged as Sheriff Gibson's main suspect. We'll examine his potential motives and his whereabouts at the time of the murder. Now, we're also going to discuss the broader implications of these suspects on the investigation and the community. I mean, how did these four individuals come under suspicion? Well, we're going to take a look at that a little bit closer. It's going to be a deep dive, and we're going to reveal um, some things and untangle this web. Well, we're going to try to. So let's get started with our first segment, and it's going to be on those three young men connected to Jimmy's past. We want to remind everyone that these people are presumed innocent until proven in a court of law, and I'm not a professional, we're not a professionals, I'm a woman with a mic and I have a passion just to bring light to these cold cases. And our podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, remember to do your own research and form your own opinions. Okay, so, who would benefit from killing this harmless man? Well, let's start with that crucial development that happened a year before Jimmy's murder. So, a year before Jimmy's tragic end, three young men were convicted for a home invasion of Jimmy's place. Yes, his own home. It was William Bill Brunton, Sean Brownfield, and Brian Dooley. This wasn't a random incident, I guess. It was a targeted attack on Jimmy, uh, allegedly. And his testimony played a crucial role in their conviction. And that's a chilling thought, if you ask me. I mean, revenge can be so powerful, especially in the criminal world, because that's major disrespect. Um, Now, these three young men, maybe facing prison time, might have harbored a resentment towards Jimmy. It's possible they, or even maybe their friends, might have sought out revenge. This is an angle that we definitely thought deserved a, a closer look. Because they didn't just steal a few trinkets, guys. It was a big roller chiller and a lawnmower and some big, nice stereo equipment back then. And I want to talk real quick before we get into those guys. I want to talk about what Jimmy went through. And the psychological impact on Jimmy from the initial robbery can't be understated. I mean being a victim once, that's gotta be such a traumatic enough, right? And the fear and of being vulnerable, he must have felt it was just traumatizing. Has have you guys has anyone out there been through a home invasion? I personally haven't, but I can't I can't imagine how terrifying it must be. I mean the safest place well it's supposed to be the safest place, your home. I mean, like, my bedroom, that's my sanctuary. It makes my anxiety turn on right now just thinking about somebody else, some stranger's eyes or hands on my personal private things. Oh, no. Then to take something that's expensive that I worked hard for, but that's what they want because it's dollar signs. Oh, no, that's not cool. All right, before I get excited here, let's take a break, and we'll be real quick about it. We'll be right back. dive into the post-1989 criminal activities of William Brunton, Brian Dooley, and Sean Brownfield. Now each of them continued to be active in criminal activities in different ways after their involvement in the robbery of Jimmy. So let's break down their actions to see how their past evolved after 1989. First up, William Brunton. Now, after 1989 incident involving Jimmy, Brunton was sentenced to six months in jail in November 1989 for that breaking and entering and theft. But Brunton's criminal activities continued. He had a problem with a probation violation on March 7, 1990. After pleading guilty on July 18, 1990, he was sentenced, or his sentence was, it says enhanced and then reimposed by Judge. Hickson. His six month sentence was increased to one year in jail on each count to be served concurrently and he had a couple counts so that probation violation which he got sentenced for that was just 17 days before the murder of Jimmy and he didn't get sentenced until um, the July 18th and Jimmy if you'll remember Jimmy's murder was March 24th 1990 Okay, so let's talk about... And that's that was about it for for uh, Brunton. He had a little run-ins here and there. Nothing really big red flags. Let's move on and let's talk about Brian Dooley. After being sentenced for breaking into Jimmy's home, Dooley was returned from the Ohio Reformatory on a shock probation. And he, that was on April 6, 1990. So that time... Timeline actually rules him out as the actual killer because he was probationed on April 6th and Jimmy again was murdered on March 23rd or 24th. Remember, it was in that time frame there in the evening, late, early morning. Okay, he was, when um, we're going back here talking about Dooley, he was originally sentenced. To November 6, 1999 like the others, for the of Jimmy. And he was later placed on a five-year probation in order to make restitution. Now, following this, there are quite a bit be- of records of further criminal activities or probation violation by Dooley. And I don't know. Maybe that suggests he's got some, you know, some trouble going on. He's fighting demons. I get it. I don't judge because I still fight my own demons. Right? And there is a domestic... I'm not excusing any behavior. I'm just... My opinions here. This is one. Um, there is one domestic violence which raises eyebrows, of course, um, but nothing uh, further violent in the domest- for domestic violence, though. Lastly, we have Sean Brownfield. His criminal record continued beyond the 1989 incident. On October 11th, 1990, Brownfield, along with three others, were charged with tampering with a coin machine and petty theft. He was found guilty and sentenced to 150 days in jail on four counts of tampering and one count of petty theft. This incident was where they was reportedly breaking into pop machines and stealing pumpkins. And that occurred when the sheriff's department, um, picked him up on, on October 9th. Now, later, he also had a domestic uh, against him, and that was several, several long years ago, but that was about it for Sean. Little traffic violations here and there, little disputes, but nothing big, nothing more violent. So, I mentioned the October 9th incident, so that leaves him evidently open on March 23rd, 24th, when Jimmy was killed. Um, That's what that looks like. So we have spoken to Sean. He actually came to us, um, volunteered for an interview, and was willing to sit down and talk about those days. I thought that was fantastic. appreciate that. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting. And we'll have that interview in a mini-episode coming up in a few days this week or maybe uh, toward the end of the week or next weekend. But it'll be soon. So you need to follow the podcast, or join our Facebook group, Death Lies and Alibis, and you won't miss an episode. I have reached out to Brian and Bill, and I haven't heard anything back from them yet, but I'll keep you updated. So what's your thoughts on these guys? What do you think about this? I mean, this is possible, right? Um, That would be very scary. That would be I mean, revenge is powerful. They're still getting into trouble afterwards. I'm wondering if there's a past connection with these guys and Jimmy. I mean, were they acquaintances or friends? Hopefully our interview with Brownfield, uh, he'll shed some light on this. Now, as we sift through these details, I can't help but think back to a conversation Jimmy had with a close friend. They mentioned something that was something off about Jimmy. His demeanor in those days leading up to his murder was just, he wasn't acting like himself. He seemed, like they said, unusually anxious, almost as if he sensed something was up. Now, with the knowledge of these young men and their criminal activities and their past involvement with Jimmy, it's hard to not, you know, it's, what, what is the connection there? Could Jimmy have been worried about retaliation from these guys? Like we keep talking, is it revenge? And let's not forget about the small-town dynamics here. In a community like Zanesville, word does get around, right? Maybe Jimmy heard something through the grapevine that put him on edge. Or perhaps it was just a general sense of unease given. You know, their, given their activities, given their history, that these guys were still reoffending. I don't... You know, I'd, like, I'd be so uncomfortable to run into him, but that situation was me. Like at the gas station or a fast food restaurant or Walmart. I mean, talk about awkward. Just really awkward. So I look at it as, as I want to look at it at every angle. To consider every possibility, no matter how uncomfortable. Because the truth is, you know, maybe understanding Jimmy State, maybe understanding what was going on those last few days. Somebody knows something. It might help. It might help understand what was going on. Now, despite Sheriff Gibson's strong claims in the media, remember that? He said they had ample evidence. Well, an arrest for Jimmy's murder never did come. And that's puzzling, right? Because it suggests a couple of things. Either the evidence wasn't as solid as Sheriff Gibson believed, or... The forensic testing hadn't been invented yet at the time, and that prevented the case from moving forward. So what I'm saying is, this case I personally take on when it comes to cold cases and reopening and getting testing because something about this case just gets to me in several ways. There's nobody standing up for Jimmy. Nobody. And next What if what Sheriff Gibson and the FBI, what if what they said is true, that there was ample evidence, that there was more than enough evidence? I mean, remember, this was 1990, 34 years ago. Just look at the technology, the new technology now that's available to do forensic testing. I mean, let's just speak about DNA, for instance, alone. That's amazing. There's touch DNA. There's mitochondrial DNA. There is a genealogy DNA. There's several ways to test now, many different ways to test now. Remember, Sheriff Gibson had the idea that it was a botched robbery. It was just robbery gone wrong. It, that implies a crime of opportunity. Um, which is really a stark contrast to what we are just speaking of with the three young men, because we were speaking of revenge, premeditated, or, you know, some kind of revenge attack. Um, But the lack of an arrest raises questions about the investigation's direction, right? I mean, was there a misstep? That's possible, were there other suspects or leads that they overlooked in the process? Well, remember we were just now talking about Sheriff Gibson and who he believed was involved in the Bosch robbery that fateful night. Remember, and this individual was already on his radar and ended up in prison, but it was a different crime. But it was right, like right around the time, right around the exact time of Jimmy's murder, um, and that person was Troy Nelson. Now, our journey to uncover the truth led us to him, and he's a man with long history of run-ins with the law, and notably, though, a personal connection to Jimmy. Now, they weren't just acquaintances. They, were, they shared beers, had long conversations, and they were part of each other's lives here in Muskingum County. Well, I had an opportunity to speak with Troy last summer, and he revealed some critical aspects of his life that shed new light on this case for me. Now, Troy admitted to struggling with alcoholism, which was severe around the time of Jimmy's murder, and he still struggles with it today. He talked about experiencing blackouts, which are significant gaps in memory. And he said where the entire events, like he mentioned his own wedding, and even the birth of his children, he said, just vanished from his mind. Now, do I believe him? Do I believe him, what he's saying? Well, I do. Because trust me, folks, when I say this is possible, I remember waking up, looking out my window for my vehicle, because I don't remember driving home the night before. And I'm so sorry. And I'm so freaking sick-hearted that I did that. And I thank my God, I never hurt or killed anyone. But yes, it's, and that one, there was many times, unfortunately. Um, But yes, it can be done. I totally, truly believe in that. So this revelation is critical. It paints a picture of a guy who, well, you know, might not be fully aware of his actions during significant periods of his life. He said he wasn't. Now let's consider this because could one of these blackouts coincide with the time of Jimmy's murder we have to ask I mean it is a disturbing thought but one we can't ignore because we are in the pursuit of the truth now Troy's struggle with alcohol and his admitted memory lapse that just adds another layer of confusion because what was their real relationship with and what was what was the relationship like what what if there was a conflict? Or an event that Troy simply doesn't remember? We have to ask these questions, no matter how sensitive they seem. Every interaction, every connection Jimmy and Troy had, no matter how seemingly small, could be a crucial piece. Because I'm committed to telling a story, and I'm committed to exploring every angle to uncover what really happened to Jimmy Frecker. Now, I reached out again to Troy and... And I'll have his interview, well, if he grants me another one, and I sure hope he does, along with Sean Brownfield. Remember, we're going to have those two interviews on an upcoming mini-episode. So, again, follow the podcast or join our Facebook if you haven't already. Now, the emotional weight of this case is very evident, right? I mean, not just in the community, but, look, in the lives of those directly involved, like Troy. It's clear that this case has left a mark on him, very clear, just as it has on many others in Zanesville, Jimmy is well spoken about. I mean people really truly love him. His co workers praise him. Now as we wrap up today's episode, I want to encourage everyone to get involved. Come on, if you know anything about Jimmy Pecker's case, please speak up. Contact the Mosqueton County Sheriff's Department and you can remain anonymous. Or you can call our tip line. It's one seven four zero Two nine nine four eight two two, and just leave a namaste tip. Your information, folks, no matter how small, could be crucial. Come on, come forward. I'm telling you, it's time for justice for Jimmy. Let's, you know what? Let's all be more active in our communities. Keep an eye out. Let's support each other. Help keep our neighborhoods safe. Because you know what, and you know it's the truth. Your involvement can make a difference especially in supporting the families dealing with these unsolved cases or the organizations that help them. All right, folks, that's it for this episode of Death, Lies, and Alibis. We hope that by shining a light on these local cold cases, we've sparked something within you, our listeners, because the truth is... Solving these cases will take more than just our words. It's going to require a dedication and a collective efforts of the entire community. Now, don't forget to hit that follow button on the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. And to learn more about how to get your case featured on the show or to get instant access to the case files, reports, plus documents, um, we have many free resources. Go to our Facebook group, Death, Lies, and Alibis, and join today or email us at death.com. Lies, alibis at gmail.com. As always, be safe, stay alert, and never stop seeking justice.